Welcome to another edition of the Bighorn Podcast, where we talk to interesting people with extraordinary stories. I'm Marty Lockman, and this episode will be brought to you with the support of Leeds and Sons, who have been part of our community for over 70 years. We have been fortunate to hear some amazing stories, and this episode's guest is no exception. We are glad to be joined by Chad McQueen, actor, race car driver, martial arts expert, family man, and I will tell you from first-hand experience, a very interesting guy. We always talk about where the story started. And for you, December 28, 1960 in Los Angeles, California, the only son of Steve McQueen and Neil Adams. Will you start your story? And to use an old line, folks, Tighten your seatbelts and get ready for quite a ride. Thank you, Marty. That's from uh, the documentary, The Man in Lamont, that you so kindly came with your wife. Um, but yeah, yeah, uh, you know, I was born in L.A., but kind of lived a gypsy lifestyle with my dad's uh, film work. Um, I just recently found a scrapbook in uh, storage, and some of the first pictures of me and my sister are on... Uh, on the set of uh, Great Escape, which is 1962. So, you know, my dad was basically orphaned. His mom wasn't much of a mother. He never knew his dad. Um, so I think that both me and my sister benefited from that uh, because every film he did, he always made sure that we were there the whole time. Uh, we lived in Germany, Taiwan for 14 months really all over the world so i think really my first uh, recollection of being on the set would probably be uh you know thomas crown bullet bullet and then thomas crown but uh i got to see which was hard i mean leaving uh leaving brentwood as a young kid and knowing you're going to to taiwan to go to school for 14 months in hong kong uh was kind of a culture shock for me to say the least but uh you know, it's the uh, it's it's the nature of the beast. You know that, Marty. It's you know it's a tra- it was uh, much more than than today. I mean, back then when you go do a film, it was a traveling circus. Everybody was implanted from L.A. It's not like Canada or other tax havens for film, where you got to hire so many people on the crew from their country, state, or whatever. But yeah, it was a it was a different time, but uh, it was neat. I got a lot, a lot of great memories. And Marty, we were talking about this uh, two years ago. But I've been approached to do a book. I've always said no, but I'm not getting any younger. And uh, you know, I'm thinking now might be the time. So. Well, it's certainly, I mean, an interesting story, but not traditional upbringing for sure. How, how was it? I mean, you get uprooted. You you make friends, I guess, on the sets. And yeah, you know, not to interrupt your question, Marty, but uh, say when I was uh, when we were in France, when my dad was on Le Mans, uh, we were in a little town called the my dad wouldn't stay in hotels. Uh, they rented him a, a big chateau, which you saw in the, the, the film. Um, and it was probably an hour from the circuit where he's filming. And it was a little town called Viry de Champagne. Very French. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And there was a farmhouse down about a mile, two miles down the road, and I had a bicycle, and I'd steal my dad's little Kawasaki 90 <laughs> and ride down there. But I remember going to lunch, and there was no verbal communication, but we would go everywhere together. He'd come to the set. I'd, I'd go to lunch at his house, and everybody was speaking French, and somehow you managed to communicate on a different level. Uh, and there was no TV. There was none of that stuff. No radio. It was all uh, uh, European. Like you said, you, you make friends and you make do. I, you know, Even in Taiwan, I made friends. Uh, I was in an American missionary school. And uh, you make friends, and I had, there was people on uh, on the Sand Pebble set that had kids, um, but they weren't there the whole time. They would come in during various breaks, but like I said... Uh, well, I know, Chad, that in doing research for this, uh, there was even a track your dad set up for racing for kids. In fact, you won your first uh, car race, as I was reading, on that track there. And I would imagine that he did everything he could to make it as comfortable as possible and, and have you guys included in whatever he was doing. The mini Le Mans, which they call it, right. had been going on for years before we got there. And what they are is uh, little replicas of uh, when I drove a uh, Ferrari 330 SP, uh, a GT40 Ford. And they were really go-karts with bodies on them with a little more horsepower. And they still do it to this day. So... Yeah, that was the first uh, car race I ever won. But, you know, really, uh, the only thing to do there uh, was to go to the set every day. You know, you know whether I got there at 7 or 11 or whether it was night shooting or whatever. But uh, Yeah, I think the other thing that I've found or heard, and you tell me whether this is a true story, that while filming the movie... There was a couple of times when you would sit in your dad's lap and he'd be going triple digits down the straightaways. Tell me about that experience. I mean, you were 10 years old at that time, wasn't you? Yeah, you know, uh, you want the long or short of it. I want the long one. All right. <laughs> uh, you know, I had best dyslexia as a kid and, uh, uh, you know, growing up the way I did, motorcycles and cars were just a huge part of my life, even at that age. I mean, I started riding motorcycles at six years old. And I started racing at nine. My mom said, if you want to go, she knew how important being around race cars was for me. If you want to go to Le Mans, you have to bring your grades up, which we talk about in the uh, in the uh, picture, in the men of Le Mans. But she got me a stack of my dad's car magazines from SCCA News, which is uh, Southern California Car Association. Anything road and track, uh, my dad would get Autosport from Europe. So I brought my grades up quick because I didn't want to stay in Brentwood by myself or with the, the Chad Wrangler, as they used to call it. But the day I got to, to France... Uh, and they dropped us off at a corner called Larnage, which is a little walk to what they call the Indianapolis corner. And to my big surprise, to my delight, there was five 917 Porsches on the left. There was five 512 Ferraris, all cars that are worth in anywhere from 10 to 25 million, depending on the shape and serial numbers matching and 
And there was a group of guys huddled, and my dad was over there, and I walked over, and it was every race car driver I knew from growing up, uh, Jean-Pierre Jubilee, David Piper, Madison Gregory, uh, Joe Siffert. And a lot of them in that era got killed. Uh, they'd go away f- for their real job during the weekend, and one or two wouldn't come back. And nowadays they say, uh, you know, race car driving is so safe. I mean, there's the uh, occasional uh, mishap, uh, and people, depending on the form, they still do get hurt. But back in the '70s, it's when uh, sex was safe and race cars were dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> A different time. You're right. Um, you were there. You were on the set. As much of an education in itself. You also, I guess, went to school during that time. Are they? Did they have tutors then? And how did that all work? Well, my dad left for shooting in June, and we left at the end of June. So he he left late May, and right after I got to school, we went on the SS France uh, from New York to uh, La Havre. That was a big ship. But yeah, so I knew all the drivers, I knew all the cars, and after watching a couple days uh, filming, and my dad made sure that everything was done at speed, and uh, as you can see in the film, I mean, it's really an immersive experience, and you can see he was toying with Le Mans during Bullet, because the way the camera mouths were in that first scene where the Mustang goes down Taylor Street, and uh, I mean, it's just, it was the first time, I remember going to the director's guild with my dad and it was the first time I'd ever, f- except for a roller coaster, felt my stomach go up in my throat. And I, I never felt that on film uh, before I'd seen my dad do it. But I kept that as my dad and, uh, after watching these guys filming at speed, you know, dad, give me a ride and something, will you? I'm busy, I'm busy and uh, after about three months, uh, they were shooting a scene down the uh, the Molson Strait, which is uh, used to be the longest straightaway in the world, uh, three point something miles, and you're flat in fifth gear for minutes and minutes and minutes. So they were filming on there, and at the end of the straightaway, there's a big hump, which they've kind of defanged because cars doing 220 miles an hour. Mercedes especially was flipping a few years ago. So they defanged it, which I don't think they should do. But So my dad and the other cars were coming into the braking zone and getting all squirrely into braking, twitching, all nervous. And they went down to the end of the corner, turned around, and I was up on the Molson corner wall, which was about five feet off the pavement. My dad flipped open his door, which is the right-hand side with the right-hand shifter, and he fucking coming over. So I didn't have a helmet. I didn't have any fireproof gear, so he's very cautious. But he put me on his lap and went back to to one where the cameras were, uh, where they start. So he put me on his lap, closed the door, and I had nowhere to put my hands except on top of his, which were at three and nine. So he got on the gas, first, second, and third, and at 917, I can't say we're going over 120. I mean, he was very cautious about my safety, but uh, that 
ride struck something in me that would just, I mean, the smell, the, the scream of that five liter flat 12 motor and something, you know, just something that just burns something in your heart and soul forever, you know? And it did for me. And uh, I think at that moment I knew I wanted to play with racing cars. But yeah, and uh, I know I touched on Bullet and the chase in Bullet, and I want to get back to that later because I've got something I, I want to talk to you about. Um, so now tell us, because we know a lot about your dad, and there's still far more even to talk about that, but give us some background on your mom. Well, um, my mother, God bless her, she's still alive. She's a singer and dancer. They met when my mom was on Broadway. They met outside of Carnegie Hall. But she did the pajama game, uh, Kismet, and a bunch of other stuff on Broadway. And uh, They moved in pretty quick, and she was uh, on the top of her game. And my dad, from what I understand, I believe he was out of the actor's studio and he was looking for work. Uh, my mom had a, a Hollywood agent uh, manager named Hilly Elkins who was Sammy Davis, uh, he did, and he produced a lot of Broadway. So my mom says that uh, my dad was uh, driving her nuts because she was working and he wasn't. So she arranged a meeting with Hilly and my dad to represent him. And he called after meeting, Then this is all for my mom. Uh, he called uh, after meeting my dad and said, uh, get rid of the bum. So, uh, yeah. So, but anyways, yeah, she had a successful career on Broadway. And, you know, she still does uh, her dinner theater in L.A. And uh, she did in New York and London uh, last year. So I think uh, for an older person to have a passion like that is something to keep you alive and young. That's spectacular. I mean, and again, just again, from my research, she really was on top of her game at that time. And she opened the Tropicana Hotel in Vegas uh, you know, she did uh, all these uh, films, as you said, and a lot of Broadway. And and she was there, and he was on his way up, and certainly... Uh, uh, you know, the cool thing, Marty, and you brought this up earlier, was uh, when my dad started to take off. They do stuff together, not much, but uh, it was TV. It was Alfred Hitchcock. And uh, you know the episode way better than I do, but... Well, uh, well, you weren't around at the no, time. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't even jumping ball to ball yet, Marty. <laughs> but, but that way, in fact, I was mentioning it to you earlier. It was one of my favorite episodes of Hitchcock, and uh, it was uh, the one where the it's called "Man from the South" with Peter Lorre, and and he has to light a lighter ten times in a row, or else he's going to lose a finger. If anybody wanted to watch that. Both your mom and dad were in that together, and it's, it's a classic episode. It's been years since I've seen it, and I'm drawing a blank. What is my mom's role in this? Thing? She was the girlfriend. She, he was in Vegas. He saw her in the lounge. She chatted her up, and then Peter Lorre heard them talking and said, uh, I've got a deal for you. You can have a brand-new Thunderbird if you come up to the room and light, and, uh, and light your, your Zippo. Ten times in a row, he was very proud of it in the in the episode, and she came up there and and if he didn't, then he would lose a finger. It's not something that uh, it's not for everybody, but it really is a classic. This love of racing has always been with you. It stays with you today, and we're going to talk a lot about that. But also, you got into the acting thing. 
our old friend Jerry Wanshaw put me in the uh, in the Karate Kid. Well, he made me read for it with Avelson. And, you know, I, I, that was probably my best work. I did some other film, but I never... I always wanted to be somewhere else around cars. I don't like being locked in on a set, and when 3 o'clock you've got to spew out a page of dialogue. It's just not, you know... So, uh, yeah, The Karate Kid, it's amazing that... Uh, I mean, we had no idea what we were making then, but uh, it's become such a phenom. Uh, well, and you got that, I mean... Part of the reason, too, is you were really good at martial arts. And Chuck Norris was one of your instructors at the time? Is that? Well, here's a funny thing, Marty, is that uh, my first teacher, when I was in fourth grade, I was, I was getting picked on because of who my dad was. And, you know, my dad taught me how to throw blows and punches with the mitts. And But uh, his friend was on a show called The Green Hornet, which has gotten canceled, and he was looking for income. And his name was Bruce Lee. So in fourth grade, my first karate lessons were with the man himself. Uh, and then uh, from there, we went on. Yeah, And then Bruce went, uh, you know, that whole thing with Kung Fu, how they stole that from him and all that, because he was Asian. He couldn't do that on TV back then. So he said, I'm going to China and make movies. And Worked out pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I remember uh, I was in my sitting in my dad's office, and uh, uh, he got a call from Bruce. You know, and he was all excited that he's making a certain amount of money and he's got a four-picture deal or whatever. So, uh, anyways, yeah, he went from just hating Hollywood to becoming probably the biggest action hero ever. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's funny, uh, I just read an email from Shannon, who I haven't seen in years, but I'm friendly with, and there's a new Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and from the trailer I've seen, they... Quentin depicted him, uh, and somebody's depicting my dad, which uh, is Damian Lewis. So uh, Shannon just said, I hope you mind my dad's legacy, and I think he's a big fan. He won't do anything stupid. But Chuck Norris and then uh, and then a guy named Pat Johnson, who ended up being a lifelong instructor to my dad, my kids. He was out here a couple weeks ago training the kids. Funny enough, and this is a real coinky dink, after I'd gotten the job, or he got his first, I believe, but Pat Johnson was the karate instructor and referee in the film. Is that right? Yeah, so that was a coincidence, and he vouched for me, so yeah. And you did quite a few. I mean, you did 19 films, over 19 films, and you were in a lot of you know, stuff. action with yeah, yeah, a lot but, of action stuff. Yeah, and I I went off and produced those. They were low budget. We did them in mostly in Canada, but you know what they say, Marty? Talent gets a generation, right? <laughs> well, I, I I don't think that's absolutely true, but I I get it, and I think it's tough to follow a legend too in any business. Yeah, it is, and it just wasn't for me. You know, I mean, I, the movie business is. It's great, and I'm on the periphery of it, and, you know, uh, it's different than it is today. It was back in the day, as you know. And you met Jerry Weintraub during that period of time, and then you produced some, you've produced a couple of films yourself, documentaries in most cases. But, yes, and I've yeah. done a couple low-budget features with, uh, you know, I did one with Chris Penn, who I liked a lot, and Michael Madsen, and... But yeah, yeah, back then when those straight to video or whatever it was, there was a good uh, margin to make some money on those films. Can we back up? You brought up Absolutely. Jerry. Absolutely. 
I know Jerry was a dear friend of yours and of mine, and I knew Jerry before the Karate Kid, and he owned a hair salon in the Beverly Hills, right? And his haircut, he got named Tovar, but yeah, he had a full-blown hair salon there, and so I knew him before, and you knew it back then, but and there was a lot of them, but Jerry always stood out as a real showman producer. He called me up to his office on Wilshire and uh, for the first time, and I think he just wanted to see what I was about, or I don't, you know how Jerry was. He had a feeling out process, at least from what I saw, a vetting process. You know, it just, God, I miss, I miss having him around here, as I'm sure you did. You were always at dinners, but yeah, I met Karen Carpenter there, and then uh, I would always go into the salons to get my hair cut, and uh, it was just, you know, we're not talking out of school, but, you know, it was... Well, he was a bigger-than-life personality, and he a person like that always leaves a void when they're not around anymore. Yeah, right, and... Uh... He's such an entrepreneur. I mean, that Elvis thing in the films and the old gods and John Denver. But yeah, I mean, uh, it, they're winning an end of an era. Yeah, for sure. Because, I mean, there are certain people that are just one of a kind. Your dad. Yes. And, uh, and Weintraub are, are just a couple I of mean, them. I mean, Jack Warners. I mean, I would put him in that category for sure. sure. Um, so now... You still get involved in some production. I know sometimes you're, you've talked to me about some meetings about what might be in the future and, and things that you're working on, and I'm not ex- asking you to get into those. But to this day, that's still always going to be a part of your life, and that's uh, something that interests you. Yeah, it is. I mean, uh, Not as passionately as... As cars. Cars, no. No, no. no. Uh, you know, yeah, when something strikes me, then I... Uh, then I'll, I'll like making the Man of the Ma. There was such a great story that nobody nobody really knew. Uh, all the troubles I'm taking the film, David Piper losing a leg, Derek Bell getting burned. It's just lucky nobody saw it, got killed with as fast as they were going every day. And with 35-pound Aeroflex cameras attached to little 1,700-pound, 240-mile-an-hour rockets, I mean, it really... Uh, but yeah, so if something strikes me, I'll do a documentary, I'll do something. And I think that uh, these documentaries that you've done, and again, that you've been so nice to include us into the viewing, uh, people always want to take back the curtain and see what's behind all of this. And I thought in that film especially, I mean, it was just extraordinary what we got to see and what went behind that, because this was a labor of love for your dad. And in some ways, it was the good news and the bad news of it. But there's there's a real story behind that. And that was what was neat about seeing that. And, and again, anybody that can get a chance to see that, please do. I'm sure you can still call it out up on Netflix. Again, why don't you give us a little background on uh, uh, not only that... Uh, uh, during the filming, my dad shot about 10 miles of film. Uh, we thought it was long gone. You know, when they edit, you know, it goes right into the incinerator. But we had found under a soundstage at Paramount 450 reels of film that nobody had ever seen. So in the documentary, Marty, as you saw, there's footage that's not in the movie that was shot. So, you know, one day I'd like to sit down and go all through that, you know. That's... It's just amazing things. And again, when I was viewing that, you could feel 
not just the speed, but the danger and everything else that went with it. This was real stuff. This wasn't Hollywood makeup. No, this was, uh, I mean, that was my dad's M.O. I mean, everything had to be shot at speed and uh, and real. The uh, thing about race car drivers is they really, you, you can't explain to somebody what it's like to be in a racing car, but you could show them. And when you see it, I think that, that the, the real danger uh, I think people, we're in a video game society, huh. and we really don't understand that there's life and death consequences to some of these. Yeah, um, back then there were so many drivers lost. Uh, in fact, I would say uh, 60% of the drivers on film are, had perished in the next five years after the picture. So, I mean, those are higher. But, yeah, they, they, what, back to your question, yeah, I mean, uh, like today, the racing cars with carbon fiber, they're so so safe. You have the occasional, you just hit wrong. Uh, the gas Martin driver last two, three years ago was killed. Just hit wrong, you know. Uh, you know, at that speed, you hit at the wrong angle like I did. It, uh, you're going to pay a price. And... Uh, I drove the exact car my dad drove in the movie with Jerry Seinfeld owns now. In fact, he was out here at Thermo a few weeks ago. But I'm short, Marty. You know that. I'm, you know, I come up to your navel. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so when I got to drive the car, I got to spend a full day with it. Uh, a friend of mine owned it before Jerry bought it, but. The first thing you notice was, I mean, it's all tube frame. So if you ever hit anything, it's no bueno. But where the front axle line is, where the front wheels attach, when you get in the car and you get in the seat, that front axle line goes underneath your knees, under my knees. So, you know, you ever go into something forward, you know, your legs are gone. But back then, that's why so many people were getting killed. There's just nothing to protect you. Uh, but, you know, talking to Jackie Oliver, Derek Bell, all those guys, it was state-of-the-art, you know? It was state-of-the-art back then, so... Well, it definitely has changed, and it's been brought about because of the injuries that that occurred, all those safety changes and things that have been, and the deaths. Which, now I come to a point where your racing career, and a very successful racing career that you were having, and you were having a lot of fun, and now we come to 2006, and you're practicing for the Daytona 24-hour race and um, uh, you know as as much as you can talk about that because I know that that's uh, a truly traumatic and life and death situation that you experienced talk to me Jeannie and the kids could tell you more because I was in a coma but from what I'm hearing I'll uh, I finally decided all I wanted to do was be around cars and race and that's what I was doing for the last four or five years I'd won a national championship Southern Pacific uh, national title and I was getting rides in cars that I never thought you know I went to you know car racing is so bloody expensive but to find uh, people that'll pay for it you know that didn't happen and it's not just because my name uh, I, I'd been teammates uh, to kids that had just come back from Europe and won run all three five at the Monaco Grand Prix and uh I was never less than three-tenths of a second slower than them, and uh, usually in the race, I was not much of a qualifier, but not bad, but racing was always 
better for me, and I think that came from motorcycles. But uh, I had been, uh, the, I'll just cut to the chase. I'd, the year before, I'd been racing uh, Daytona prototypes for a gentleman named uh, Ted Spooner, very wealthy guy out of Portland, Oregon. He invited me to race the SEC runoffs uh, with him and Dominic, who had just come back from Europe. Uh, anyways, I placed... Well, it's like every pro and every amateur from across uh, North America gets together for uh, one week. And so it's it's uh, sink or swim, but uh, I did very, very well. And uh, the next year he decided to go prototype racing, and we're talking, uh, you know, 210-mile-an-hour cars. Very expensive, the chassis just itself with no motors. 650,000. Our motors came from Roush Ford Motors. Uh, anyway, so we did uh, races the, the year before, and uh, we thought we were all set to go to Daytona test days in, uh, in January, and he called and he said, I'm getting a divorce, I'm selling everything. So I was out of a ride. And so I had gotten call from a, a guy named Jim Taffel, very wealthy. His dad was wealthy. His dad had won the Kentucky Derby with a horse a few years before, and I forget the name of the horse, but uh, he sold it to uh, the Middle East for ungodly amount of money, 80 million, but told uh, Jim to go racing. And he was actually a satellite factory squad. Uh, they had Wolf Hensler, a factory German driver, Robert Liddell, myself, uh, Graham Ray Hall. I said, come down to Daytona and we'll give you a ride and test. And, and it was going great. Uh, I don't like the slower GT cars uh, because you're always looking in your mirror for cars that are coming up on you probably 50 miles an hour faster. And if you're in the wrong place, it can get ugly. But I took the ride and uh, like I said, it was a satellite team because Jim was spending so much money buying chassis. So, I mean, I had a great morning. They were changing the seatbelts on that morning. Another lure was uh, the uh, the engineer was a guy named Tony Dow who had won the Lamar effort a few years before. Anyways, I came out of, uh, just cut to the chase, I, I'd had a good morning warm-up and uh, was quick and... Uh, I was waiting for one of the drivers co to come in, and he stayed one lap longer out than he should have. So I think I had maybe uh, eight minutes left in the session at Daytona. That's a huge, huge track, and uh, that's not many laps. So I hopped in the car and did a couple good quick laps. And then I was coming out of NASCAR 2, which is the oval. Now, in the 24-hour, unlike the Daytona 500, you don't go round and round, which is a skill unto itself. But you come out at 1 and 2, chicane, and then 3 and 4. So you're using the high-speed bank. And uh, anyways, I came out of NASCAR 2, and in the RSR Porsche that I was driving, you know, buck 80, buck 70, but the DP cars are, you know, 2, 210. So they have, uh, to slow the cars down, they put in what's called a chicane. So it's a left, right, right, left to get you back out towards the banking. Uh, so I look in my mirror and here comes up some DP cars. And my car, the, the RSR, was so light and great under braking. And here they come and I had to decide, well, you know, am I gonna lift, I'm on a good lap and lose the time, or do I just let them sort it out? And right when I'm making that decision, I look up and there's tire smoke. You know, everybody's trying to outbreak each other in his practice. So they go off in the gravel, the grass and everything, and I stay and go through the chicane. Now on the in-car camera that I'm, is in my car, you can hear, excuse me, not in my car, the car behind me, which was flying lizard pores. You could hear the gravel go up into the wheel wells. So as soon as I got out of the chicane, I was just reaching for fourth gear, 
So it's honking, and I feel the rear end start to lose traction. It's starting to get a little loose and wanting to step out on me. And, you know, in a rear engine car, when the car starts to lose traction in the rear, which is called oversteer, you never get out of the throttle because you get what's called pitch, which the rear end of the car lifts up and starts steering the nose. So you always want to keep powered on a rear wheel car. But once I got past the point of no return, I thought I was going to back into the wall, and I touched the brakes. And the car rotated on the front on the front wheels, and I was from me to that painting right there, and going on a good click, and I just went right into the wall, and everything came up on top of me. And when I woke up, they were cutting the roof off, and then uh, IMSA found out that the it was an illegal carbon fiber roof, so they got fined for that. But when I woke up, they tried to pull my helmet off, and it sent a lightning rod down to the end of my toes, and I knew something was horribly wrong, not to mention my left leg was uh, at an angle that I was not very pleased to see. And my first thought was, well, I guess I'm not going to have an after-race beer tonight. But, uh, yeah, and uh, so when they took off my helmet, I knew something was wrong. You know, a lot of people, were, you know, were behind me uh, that I still see today. But, uh, uh, yeah, they, uh, they took me to the hospital, and my coma, which I was in for three and a half weeks, was induced because I was getting bleeding out of my spine and my brain and they had to put drains all in and they couldn't find where it was at first but Jeannie knows better than I so we went to the hospital and my assistant uh, called Jeannie and said he didn't know he said I might have broken uh, my left leg again and I got some whiplash and the doctor got on the phone with her for and said no he broke his neck two through seven next thing I know a priest comes in you know, I started doing it. I said, oh, my God. I said, please don't let me be paralyzed, you know. So uh, Jeannie and the kids got on a plane from down here, but I think they left it from, I don't know. It took them 14 hours, and uh, I was still in surgery, so that was a 14-hour surgery. I think it went to 15 because they had gone to the hospital. Now, when you're in a coma in ICU, they turn on the TV, I think, to stimulate your brain, right? Keep things. But uh, um, Jeannie said that uh, when she got there, they opened the doors and the nurses were all standing around and she thought that I died. And uh, and she goes, what's, what's going on? And Jeannie looked up and the film bullet was on. No. My dad. And, no. And the nurses said to Jeannie, we don't know whether to turn this off or or leave it because is he here to take him or is he here to save him? So what's the coincidence of that? So uh, yeah, I mean I, I don't remember much after that, but the pain and you know the table and uh, uh, I was two months in Florida and then they flew me back here for my last I want to say six surgeries. But yeah, I broke everything, all the ribs on the right side, my left arm, uh, left leg, powdered my neck, right thumb, and that's about it. And now a year later, you come back to Daytona. Well, I would say, thank God, I used to drive for a team called, a very famous team called Brumo Sports. And the owner was a, name, a guy named Bob Snodgrass. Uh, and he was good friends with, best friends with Bill France, who owned Daytona and a NASCAR legend. Uh, but after I got hurt, he came to the hospital. I got to say, he made sure Jeannie and the kids were at cars and drivers and go back and forth. But... Yeah, so, you know, when I got hurt, Bob had called Bill France and said, I need Dr. Kennedy, who was the best surgeon, who was married to Bill France's daughter. They were on their way to Hawaii, and they turned around and came back just for me. And uh, so a year later, it was a year or two later, but I had to go back and thank the guys at 
that really saved me. If they had moved me an inch the wrong way, right, I'd be sitting in a chair with wheels. Yeah, so I went back and, uh, you know, it's been, it was a long recovery and uh, it's all good. I'm still numb. Thank God I'm not paralyzed. I'm still numb, but uh, all things considered, it's all good. And I'm driving race cars again. And in 2010, do you start um, McQueen Racing? Is that? Uh, we started that, me and my partner. One of the reasons was uh, we get a lot of inquiries about using my dad for licensing deals and stuff like that. And I'm very cautious about what we do. I mean, if you look at what we do, it's tag, it's barber, it's per soul, it's stuff that he either rode, wore, or drove. That being said, uh, my dad's friends, some are still alive. And this started basically because Triumph Motorcycles came to us and wanted to do uh, a McQueen edition. I said, all right, well, what makes a difference in the, your BT-100 or BT-120, whatever? Uh, nothing. It's the great escape, you know, paint job with a seat and the wreck. I said, I can't, uh, you know, I, I, I'll get my bus and I don't need that, you know, and the money was nothing to sneeze at, but I, you know, I, I'd rather dig ditches than do something wrong with my dad. You know what I'm saying? Right. So uh, uh, my partner, Dave Green, said, well, let's turn this into a good. So we negotiated with Triumph to get, I think they gave us 10, 15 grand. We took that money and I went and found Matt Capri, who holds several Bonneville salt records on Triumphs. So he knows how to build a motor. So uh, we, we did the deal then so you could buy the Triumph. But with Matt, we developed a kit that lowers the bike, stiffer springs, wider rims, smaller blinkers, more aero uh, mirrors, a pipe, cams, board of bigger pistons. I think I might have said that, but it went from a certain amount of horsepower to we got 22 and a half more, 17 more pounds foot of torque. And now you can buy that kit for any Triumph through McQueen Racing or Triumph South Bay. So after that, uh, things started evolving. And, uh, you know, listen, to be, my dad always used to say, to make money doing what you're passionate about, then you got the world licked. So uh, I'm having a lot of fun playing with this thing. Now, that brings me to what's going on today. Yes, I'm back playing in race cars. I'm not really racing in case my mom hears this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and Chad, before we get into the rest of your life, let's take a little break here for a message from Leeds and Sunfine Jewelers. You're buying more than a diamond ring or you're buying more than a watch when you come to Leeds and Sun. You're buying integrity. You're buying value. You're buying the best products in the world brought to the Coachella Valley with great care. Leeds and Sun, the Coachella Valley's jewelry experts. And now we'll be back with Chad McQueen, our guest for today with the rest of his incredible story. You really are the keeper of the flame. And that's a very serious thing to you, as well it should be. Because as you've already mentioned, you can't, uh, the use of your dad's image, your do of his name. Uh, here was a guy that was an outsider himself. But everything that he touched became in. It's kind of ironic that that should be the case. I think uh, a friend of my dad said to me, he said, your dad made it to the inside and threw a lot of blows and things in there. <laughs> That's exactly. <laughs> That's exactly. But whether it's the Pearsall sunglasses. No, but it's, 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 you know, it's crazy. My dad, on November 7th, it'll be 38 years he's gone, and he resonates today. You know, I mean, Ford came out with a, on the 50th anniversary of Bullet, the new Mustang. 
which we're going to do for two years. And I've been to Ireland. I've been across the globe uh, promoting the new car. It's a great car. Fabulous car. Fabulous looking. McQueen Racing said, well, what can we do like we do with Triumph? So we hooked up with a company called Steeda, S-T-E-E-D-A, who is basically made up of old Ford execs, but they're passionate about racing and building cars. Now, like I said, I went to Ireland and drove the first right-hand drive Mustang around the island for Ford, and they shot it. And the good thing is that now the Bullet Mustang is going to be available in those markets, Australia, England, New Zealand. I think Japan, I'm not sure about because they have a weird rule on horsepower displacement and stuff like that. Me, uh, McQueen Racing and Steeda are buying... 300 cars this year, the Mustangs. We've taken the motor, added a supercharger, gone through everything. The roll bar, anti-roll bars are double the thickness. The half shafts have been re-engineered. The gearbox re-engineered. So unlike the Hellcat, which has got identical horsepower, but it's more aimed at going fast in a straight line. Uh, and I just came back from uh, Texas two weeks ago where I shook down the car at a racetrack out there, and it really felt Porsche-like. It felt like it was a cohesive piece of uh, machinery, not just a bits of this, bits of that, a bits of car. So uh, I'm really happy, and we just announced... Uh, Beside the supercharged one, you can get a 550 or normally aspirated horsepower, normally aspirated motor with it. But everything's been redone. Uh, again, you can buy the parts under McQueen Racing through Steeda. Very cool. Well, and again, there's uh, the tag watches that he wore at Le Mans. And as I said, the sunglasses from the Thomas Crown Affair. And I would imagine that you normally, and, and Chad is now showing me both the watch yeah. and the glasses that he has on. Uh, but also, I'm sure that you just have to watch because there's big name uh, people that are trying to use your dad's they do, you stuff. Know, and I, I read about that occasionally where you have to uh, give a little phone call and, and make sure that uh, they're doing it correctly and with your knowledge. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, in fact, uh, we had to file a lawsuit, and I'm not talking out of school, we can't talk about it, but uh, Tom Ford is putting out the McQueen cardigan, and you would think they know better. And we had an issue with Ferrari last year, and I can't talk about that, but we were suing them, and now we're not. But, uh, you know, my, I, I, I'm starting to think they just want to beg forgiveness instead of permission, maybe. So, I don't know, but yeah, it's like a, it's a constant thing with fake t-shirts, fake this, fake that, motorcycles, cars that aren't real, so that's my life's work is to, you know, I'm constantly having to, and my team of, uh, of Corvus Greenlight in New York, uh, and by the Keeper of the Flame, uh, these guys are a big part of helping me out, I mean, all I can do is what my instincts tell me, so, uh, but they're good at protecting and saying no. So. Well, he's still an iconic figure, and uh, and it means a lot. So you can't cheapen that. No, image. no, no. I mean, uh, a couple of years ago, we got approached by the company that bought Elvis and uh, Muhammad to sell. And uh, I mean, that was a healthy figure, but was it life changing to give up my dad to see him on an airport backpack no i like, I like a bigger house and bighorn with a 10-car garage so maybe i should have taken it <laughs> we talk <laughs> we talk about family and i know Jeannie, your children Stephen, chase and madison are a big part of your life because i know that they mean a whole lot to you and and uh, 
uh, as I said at the start of this, you're, you're a family guy and a good dad. You're now here at Bighorn. We talk about this a lot, as much as you can be. What brought you to Bighorn to begin with? Uh, well, you know, funny enough, and we didn't know this until later, but we lived on the same street in Malibu, and I That's still funny. have my house there, but right. I'm getting ready to get out. Uh, I had bought a little house in Murano, in Palm Desert, little teeny houses of vacation for me and the family. My sister, who uh, had passed, has got it's been 15 years now, came over to the house one day and took Jeannie up and said, hey, you gotta see this place called Bighorn. They went and looked, and I think it was still owned by GE back then, or? Westinghouse. Westinghouse. So I came up and looked at it, and I thought, well, it's, you know, all right, but, uh, you know, hmm. So, uh, yeah, Murano, and then, uh, you know, I was always in L.A., Malibu, and they sold that and built a place in La Terraza. And I was there when I got hurt. And after I got back from the hospital, I was like 136 pounds. I mean, it's just nothing. I'd learned to walk again and all that. And Marty, I was getting bored and just enough TV and enough painkillers. I got off that and hired somebody to walk with me. You know, the first it was to the neighbor's house and it was to the stop sign. And, the, you know, it's just, I, and I never thought I'd drive a car again. But so I was bored and working on, you know, cleaning myself out and get, getting weight back and exercising. And I was on a feeding tube. I just, I still had the halo in my head and uh, I wanted to get out from where we were. And I was in a wheelchair still <laughs> with that thing on my head. And he says, well, let's go to Bighorn and just take a look. And uh, I said, okay, I sent her up to look for a house. I mean, I didn't know what it was all about. I didn't know RD from a hole in the wall. I didn't know anything about this place. And Jeannie looked for a house up here, and we found one. And especially after I got hurt by my, you know, because of the weather's way better for me. But my focus really has gone from L.A. Malibu to really here. And when you get to Bighorn, I mean, I've lived everywhere around the world. I, I could live anywhere I wanted. And when I moved here, the Bighorn is a family. And, uh, you know, a year goes by, and I'm just going, to, I kind of dig this, you know. And I don't want to sound like what? You know, if you if Jeannie doesn't want to cook, she's had a hard day, you can call and get food to your house. Eventually, you start to know everybody, Jesus, uh, Jimmy, R.D., Daryl, Derek, uh, Tom, I, you know, Bob, just everybody. It's a family. I stand corrected. It is a family. It's a, and it's, you know, they know what you want. It, it, so anyways, I'm a big fan of Bighorn, or I would have left, uh, uh, who would, I'm on my 14th year here, if you can believe it. And I'm gone, I mean, I'm based out of here now. I leave out of Palm Springs Airport or, you know, Bighorn uh, has three planes. I've only rented the Pilatus twice, but that's to get up to Monterey, but it's a nice, I mean, what other country club has that down here? And I don't golf, but uh, looking across my backyard, across <laughs> that lake and the green and the mountains and just, it's, you know, and the way you're taking care of him with my injuries, having the wellness center here and uh, the masseuses that know my injuries. And uh, if I have a water on the knee flare up, they know what to do. And so, yeah, uh, I can't wax poetic enough about this place. And you too. I mean, everybody, I think, is at a certain station in life. And everybody is so good and kind and, like you said, a family. So, uh, yeah, I'm happy to be here. And yeah, and, I, and again, it's not being corny. I think it's just a very special place. Obviously, we both feel that way and we've talked a lot about it um, but I also know that there's something else near and dear to your heart 
as far as a charity that you're actively involved in that uh, and it has to do with your dad give us a little background on that oh well in the uh, in the 40s my dad never knew his dad and his mom was sketchy at best she would take off and leave him for months at a time she got remarried and went to new york and anyway so he was stealing stuff to keep alive and doing petty crimes and and he got busted and uh, a judge said uh, you know you're a smart kid i I'm going to give you a chance here. And the Boys Republic, which we're talking about, founded in 1907, uh, they stuck my dad in there. And years later, my dad told me, son, this place turned my life around, got me on the right track, and after they went in the Marines. But, uh, and by the way, if you want to look it up, it's in Chino Hills, California, called the Boys Republic, and it's turned so many troubled youth into... Uh, into tax-paying adults, you know, yeah. contributors to society. I mean, it's just, it's fabulous what they do out there. But if you go on the Friends of McQueen car show, you'll see what we're talking about. But about uh, 10 years ago, Ron Harris, a member in here, uh, knew about my dad's history and uh, knew about the Voice Republic and said, uh, would, you, would you like to do a, a car show? And I thought, you know, uh, and by the way, I'd always been in contact with them when my sister passed, they buried it. They, uh, they uh, planted a tree for her, which is huge now, but, uh, and we tried to, I'd go to fundraisers and stuff, which were okay. The first year we did the car show, I think we raised 14 grand, and I think 13 of that was from Ron Harris. And we had maybe 15 cars, but it was good vibe and great. Cut 10 years later, we're getting a 917K like my dad drove. My dad's old Jaguar XKSS that the uh, Peterson has now, just... And they turned down $38 million for the car, one of 16 built. So the car show is, and it's a car motorcycle show, and you get to see the campus of the Boys Republic. And this last year, to cut from the first year, we raised $876,000. And that goes right into the school. And like the old uh, cottage where my dad was, was exactly the same when he left in the late 40s. So this car show is, you know, it's shared by six to eight boys. And the, the urinal was just a fucking trough with no dividers. The shower, same thing with one shower head with, you know, one sink. So with the money from that and Peter Dunkel's friend, they went and refurbished the whole thing. New urinals, partitions, shower heads, new floors, new, you know. So that's going on through the whole school slowly but surely because of this car show in fact it's doing good enough where they uh where they canceled every other fundraiser but this the, all the boys get involved the night before we have a dinner so the boys help place the cars in fact they get to choose a car of their own all the trophies are made by the boys in the wood shop and you know it's three things my dad really loved the boys republic which he always gave to never said anything like if you do a picture he'd ask for 50 pairs of jeans and get them in different sizes and have them delivered out there, razors like that. And when he passed, he'd left a good chunk of money and they built the rec center. Back to the car show, uh, they just built, and it's opened last week, a new culinary center after Max Scott, who knew my dad and was there. In fact, he told me a story about my, uh, when my dad was there, my grandmother called and said, uh, I'm gonna pick you up today at the Boys Republic and we're gonna go out, it was Christmas day. And uh, Max said that the, who he took over, the principal that was, there 
when my dad was there. So these guys last a long time. And the turnover rate of theirs, I mean, guys are out there 30, educators, 30 years, you know, and they live on property. So it's, it's great. And their motto is nothing but nothing without labor. Yeah. So, oh, and don't forget, they also do the Delarobia Reese out there that they've been doing since 1926. You know those Reese? So, yeah. It's a, it, I have one. Do right, you? Yeah. I, every year, I, I, right. I, you know, but uh, so yeah, it's been a good positive thing, and uh, the Max got the Culinary Center is going to open, and uh, the car show is on June second, and every uh, first Saturday and uh, is a car show. The night before is a dinner and fundraiser, which is a good time. Big tent. It's just a good time. So and people can meet you during that time. And yeah, you can meet. See some great cars and. Yeah, and we have In-N-Out Burger. We have, I mean, we got, we get thousands of, and by the way, Marty, it's not just cars. I mean, we have like Myers-Manx Doom Buggies. We have, we'll have a hundred Air Steams. There'll be Bullet Mustangs, Rose. There'll be old Porsches. And also we have a section which is old steam motors, piston powered, and they're lined up. So there's something for everybody, great for kids. And like I said, if you go on any more information, go to, the Boys Republic in uh, Chino Hills, California. Number is 909-628-1217. Shameless plug. No, there's nothing shameless about charity, and this is a good one. Yes, it is. Ah, oh, here's my daughter, Madison and Jeannie. Uh, and we talked about San Francisco, Madison, and what we did out there. And i got to say, I'm so proud of Chase and Madison. Uh, they're have taken a lot of load off me, like social media, I don't know that stuff. Uh, Chase has taken uh, my dad's through Corvus's uh, website and gone from 400 people to 47,000. So I don't know, they're being very helpful. They're getting involved in everything, McQueen, lawyers, everything that's going on in my life, they're totally involved, which is so great. And you know, people growing up in Bighorn, people, oh, you're living in a bubble, your kids, because, you know. But their reality is something different. They grew up like Jerry's kids, seeing a different, a different world. And uh, the kids know how to earn a dollar. That's all I really care about. And they pay their taxes. And it's fun working with family. And the flame and the flame can continue. Correct. So that's important for that to happen and for them to take on that responsibility that you've taken on, uh, because that needs to be protected forever. It does. Uh, um, you know, I'm just a guardian of that name, and I've got to protect it, and they've got to, they've got to honor it, too. If you ever want to talk to Jeannie about my crash, do an interview with her. But, uh, yeah, Marty, i got to say, dude, uh, you know, uh, this isn't my thing, but you're one of my favorite people up here, and I always enjoy seeing you and your family, Cindy and your kids. and So, yeah, anytime... Uh, you got something going, dude. I'm on your side, all right? This has been terrific. Thanks again, Chad. All right, guys. Ciao. Thank you, Chad McQueen, for sharing your most interesting and personal story. Thanks again to Leeds & Son for their support. We will be with you soon on the next episode of the Bighorn Podcast. <laughs>